How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Is everybody exhausted? Because I'm exhausted. That time change messed me up. So we're going to have a little bit of grace with us all today with our message as well. Um, I don't know why they have to keep changing the clocks like that. It drives me crazy. But to help encourage us, to help refresh us, to help give us a little bit of spiritual awakening, why don't we spend some time in prayer with God today? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've brought us together. We just ask that you would help to open our hearts, that you would help us to dive into your word, that you would give us encouragement and refreshment, and that you would just help us to learn from your word. Father, I ask that you would be with me as, as I present your word today. I ask that you would make my message clear and concise, that all those who are hearing it would be able to take something from your word and apply it to their lives to go out and make disciples of all nations. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. So everybody, things are different. There's no pulpit. You'll see why. It's going to be a fun day today. Um, we're, we're on the home stretch with our Pyramids series. We're kind of cruising, cruising towards the end of the book of Exodus. Um, so today we're going to be looking at the passages of Scripture that relate to the tabernacle. Um, just to give everybody a little bit of a heads up of the next few weeks. So next week I'll be gone again for Battle Assembly. Um, and then we've got two more weeks in Exodus, and then it's Easter. And then we're going to jump into something new. Um, is everybody, with us going through the book of Exodus like this, is everybody like this, deep diving into one big? You, you can say no if you don't. Okay. I know some people like to, you know, disperse and make the sermon series a little bit shorter. Some people like to do topical. Um, but if everybody's okay with this, what I want to do when we finish up Exodus is we're going to have maybe two or three weeks to decompress and have a little bit lighter material that we can kind of decompress a little bit. And then I want to jump into another book and just deep dive like we've been doing. Is everybody okay with that? Maybe? Okay. Um, if there's something you want to study, tell me. Like, hey, I really want to study this, and we'll see if we can work things in. But today we're going to pick up in our Pyramids series. Um, you remember our, we're looking at the Bible in this pyramid where we have base layer. So we're looking at what the Bible tells us. So in the base layer so far, we've seen how God has taken a group of people out of Egypt, and he's training them to be his followers. Okay. You go a level above that, and we're looking at the moral application. We're looking at obedience, faith, this idea that God is trying to tell us that we need to know that he is God and trust him and rely on him. That's what we've been seeing in Exodus so far. You go to that next layer up, and you're finding all of those places where the Bible points us to Jesus. We've seen that with the Passover, with the blood of the Lamb, with the, the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, pointing us forward to baptism. And then we, a, a few weeks ago, we talked about this tip of the pyramid question. How does a perfect God interact with imperfect people? 
those big, big questions that we wrestle with. And so that's how we've been looking at the book of Exodus. That's the lens. And so that's the big question we're answering, right? How does a perfect God interact with imperfect people? And that's going to come up more and more as we go through this. So today, as you can see, we're, we're a little bit different. We're going to go through the text a little bit differently. I'm going to do two things. First of all, I'm going to read it out of order. And if that, if that bothers you, I'm sorry. But my goal is I want us to envision this tabernacle. And in order to do that, I'm going to kind of have to jump around from place to place so that I can walk around and show you where everything would be. So if you're trying to follow along on your Bible, I've got it up on the screen. Just know that we're not going to be going straight through because I want to really present it to you in a way that's, um, that's approachable. And so I'm going to have to take bits and pieces out of order so we can really understand this tabernacle. And the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading today from a different Bible translation than we usually do. I'm going to be using the New Living Translation instead of the NIV. And the reason I'm doing that is because the New Living Translation does this really awesome thing where it takes all of those ancient measurements like cubits and handbreadths and stadia and all of those things and it converts them to feet and inches and all of those measurements that we all understand. Um, so just for today, I'm going to use this other translation because it describes things in ways that you and I understand. It's not like 14 cubits. I looked at Home Depot. I could not find a tape measure with cubits on it. <laughs> and I'm not a math person, so we're going to use a translation that does that math for us. Um, so you might notice as we're reading along that, well, this isn't what my Bible says. That's because they're doing that added step of doing the math for us. And I'm grateful for that. Um, so I want to look at, the first passage I want to look at is actually in Exodus 27, 9. It says, then make the courtyard for the tabernacle, enclosed with curtains made of finely woven linen, on the south side, make the curtains 150 feet long. They will be held up by 20 posts set securely in 20 bronze bases. Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. So I want you to imagine you're out in the desert. You've got this big, it's 150 feet long by about 75 feet wide curtained off area with posts about every seven and a half, eight feet. So you can imagine, um, imagine the outside of our church building, on the outside, not the inside, from the corner all the way back to where the end of my office is. And then about the width of the outside of the building. That's this, can you guys kind of picture that's how big our courtyard area is? And then you've got posts, I need a volunteer. Need a volunteer, Mr. Richard? Yeah. So hold that right there on that on that thing there. About every seven and a half feet. So there's gonna be a post right where he's at. You're gonna have a post here. You're gonna have a post here. And 
you have a post here. Boom, boom, boom. So you can picture about where these columns are. Pretty close. All the way across, sorry. This is going to be very disorienting to you guys, so I apologize in advance. Um, okay, let me roll this up. You're not done yet, I promise, so you'll be holding that. So you're inside of this, this big courtyard, and then imagine here, as we walk in the building, this is coming into the courtyard, our front doors. Now I'm going to jump to Exodus 27:16. It says, for the entrance to the courtyard, make a curtain that is 30 feet long, make it from finely woven linen, and decorate it with beautiful embroidery in blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with four posts, each securely set in its own base. Okay, so you've got this big curtained off area. Now imagine a 30 foot wide, two cattle gates, two or three cattle gates, big ones. That's pretty close. If you've got a 12 foot gate and you've got two of them, that's 24 feet plus or minus. So imagine the width of two cattle gates coming through in the beginning, but you've got this beautiful purple embroidered curtain and that's your entrance into the courtyard. Is everybody tracking? Everybody picturing what we're seeing? Okay. Now we're going to jump back up to Exodus 27, 1. It says, using acacia wood, construct a, an, a square altar, seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and the altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze. Okay, somebody... Hold that right there. Maybe we have room here. Seven and a half feet. This might be my last sermon. Ron and Sue might be like... Yeah. Okay. So seven and a half feet. Hold that down there. I didn't verify whether or not this would stick. Seven and a half feet is like there. And seven and a half feet this way. Hold that on the corner. We're going to come right there. Okay, we don't have room to build the whole altar here. But you can imagine it. Square. Right about there. And then we're going to come up. It's going to go under your chair. So there's an altar right here. Okay? This is where all of the sacrifices would have taken place uh, when they would have brought the animals in through these double cattle gates. And they're doing the sacrifices and they're burning the animals on the altar, okay? In this area right here. Um, and it's got four horns on all four corners. Those are important. Those horns on the altar were something that would have represented power and authority to the Israelites. What's the, what's the part of the bull that you don't want to mess with? The horns, right? So this is a constant reminder to them of God's power and authority and ability to forgive sins. Um, 
This is the place where when they did the sacrifices, they would sprinkle blood on the horns. If they were going to do a prayer, they would grab onto those horns and they would do their prayer right there. So those horns were very, very important. Um, and then as you move a little bit forward, this is, now we're all the way in chapter 30, verse 18. You can see how I have to do this out of order because I want to walk you through this. It says, make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand. Place it between the tabernacle and the altar and fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. So the priests would come in and they would give their sacrifice and then any time they needed to approach the tabernacle, they needed to wash themselves in this basin. It wasn't to wash the dirt off their hands. It was a spiritual uh, ritual cleansing. Because before they approached God, they needed to ritually remove themselves of sin. They needed to wash themselves clean before they stood in the presence of God. This feeds into our question. How does a perfect God interact with imperfect people? Well, God can't be in the presence of sin. And so they had to go through this process to remove their sin through this washing. And they, they had to be wearing certain special clothes. We're going to jump backwards now to chapter 28, verse 1. These are the priests. It says, Call for your brother Aaron and his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Set them apart from the rest of the people of Israel so that they may minister to me and be my priests. Make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. So God told them, not only do you need to be ritually clean, but you need to be set apart. You need to have special clothes on so that you can be the ones who stand between the people and God. That's what God is pointing out to us here in Exodus. And they had this this medallion that they would wear in 28 verse 37 it says attach the medallion with the blue cord to the front of Aaron's turban where it must remain so you can picture they've got this fancy get up there's an ephod and all sorts of jewels and stones and they had this coin this medallion that went right here and it says Aaron must wear it on his forehead so that he may Take on himself any guilt of the people of Israel when they consecrate their sacred offerings. He must always wear it on his forehead so the Lord will accept the people. So think about, I'm going to move our altar here in a second. Not only are they required to be ritually clean, not only are they required to do a sacrifice to be in the presence of God. Not only did they have to have special clothes on, but they were required to have this special emblem that represented them taking all of their sins, all of the sins of the people of Israel, and placing it on this item. Also that they could be free of sin when they approached God. Because God cannot be in the presence of sin. That's what he's trying to drill down to the people. And as they would do their sacrifice, they would be ritually clean, they would put 
on their special get-up. They would have the medallion. They've atoned for their sins with the sacrifice. They've taken on the sins of the community. They've placed all their sins on this item so that they can approach the tabernacle, the actual tent inside the courtyard. Okay, go back to chapter 26, verse 1. It says, Make the tabernacle from ten curtains of finely woven linen. Decorate the curtains with blue, purple, and scarlet thread with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Join five of this is chapter, uh, verse 3. It says, Join five of these curtains together to make one long curtain, then join the other five into a second long curtain. Okay, so you've got this big curtain. You can picture... They basically had ten small curtains. Five and five would be joined permanently. And then those two big curtains would be joined temporarily to go over the top of the tent. So when they packed up and moved, they would separate the two curtains, pack it up, roll it up, separate this curtain, pack it up, roll it up, move on to their next location. And then they would recombine those two curtains to put over the tent. Guys, tracking with that so far? You guys have gone camping, I'm sure. There's a process when you take your tent apart and put it together. You've got your poles and your stuff, and some things zip together and some things don't. That's what it was. It was practical in that respect. And then on top of that, it says, this is verse 7, make 11 curtains of goat hair cloth to serve as a tent covering for the tabernacle. So you've got one layer of linen. Now you've got another layer of goat hair that's connected in a similar fashion. And then 26 verse 14 says, complete the tent covering with a protective layer of tanned ram skins and a layer of fine goat skin leather. So you've got a, a third layer of the ram skins and goat leather on top of that. So these three layers of curtains. One, two, three. And those would go over the top of the frame for the tent. It says, for the framework, this is verse 15, for the framework of the tabernacle, conduct, construct frames of acacia wood. Each frame must be 15 feet high and 27 inches wide with two pegs under each frame. Make all the frames identical. Make 20 of these frames to support the curtains on the south side of the tabernacle. Okay, so picture this in your mind. Looks like a almost like a ladder, 15 by about a foot and a half. And then there were multiple of these frames that they would set up one next to the other and then have a pole that went through them like this. Um, so you just picture, like say, picture several ladders that are connected through a pole in the middle and they would lock those in like Legos and make this rectangular shape and then they would drape the curtains over the top of it, and now you have a tent. So, and we're, let's see, I've got my measurements here. Okay, so what you ended up having was a, a 15 foot high tent by 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. Uh, go right over, hold that right there. Right there on that corner. 45 feet long. So now we're going to have to 
We're going to have to condense our measurements because this would actually be way back in my office. So. Right about here. Can you guys see okay? That's the length of our tabernacle, okay? Go ahead and just leave that on the ground. So right now, this is, you can almost imagine this room as being the tabernacle. Um, so you're the priest. You've gone through your ritual cleansing. You've done the sacrifices. You've got this big tent. And you approach the tent and you pull apart this curtain. And you would come in and you would see on the right-hand side a table with some bread. On the left-hand side you would see uh, a lamp right over here. Um, it was a menorah. You guys know what a menorah looks like from Hanukkah? That's what it was. It was that kind of a lamp. So as you're looking at me, you've got the table with the bread here. You've got the table with the menorah here. And then right about here you would have... Um, actually, if we're taking these measurements, right about here would be the altar of incense. And behind that, you would have a curtain. And a whole other room over here. 2631 says, For the inside of the tabernacle make a special curtain of finely woven linen. Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to the four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. So you can imagine right about here, post, 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 and a curtain going across. It says, hang the inner curtain from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. So, I did some measurements before so you don't have to hold the tape for this one. You've got this 15 foot wide. Um, 15 feet is about the length of this stage here. Okay? Oh no. Well somebody you go hand put hold that on the thing. Sorry. Am I on 15? Oh yeah, pretty close. More or less. I don't want to step in there. That is the location where they would put the ark. That's the location where they would put 
the commandments, the word of God, everything would be behind that curtain. That's the most holy place. Um, they have this. The Ark of the Covenant looked like a big chest with a, a gold-plated lid on top with two cherubim. And a cherubim is just, if you can imagine what Hollywood portrays angels to look like, with the robes and the wings sitting on a cloud playing a harp. It's not a biblical, it's not what the Bible describes angels as, but that's what a cherubim looks like. So picture Hollywood angels on top of this ark with their wings pointed forward like this, kneeling over the lid of the ark. And inside the ark is where the, the word of God was. And, and that is the, right here, that 225 square foot tent was the residing place of God. That is where, that is God's location. I want you to wrestle with that because we're going to come back to that. So, with what we've seen in all of this, and I know I've kind of rattled through all of this, but our tip of the pyramid question is how does a perfect God interact with imperfect people? There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be something that takes away our sins. There's a moral debt that has to be paid in order for imperfect people to interact with an imperfect God. And in, in the book of Exodus, we're, we're told that this sacrifice took place with goats and lambs and bulls. Somebody's blood, something's blood has to be shed in order to pay for our moral debt. And I'll be honest, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm thinking about things like that, it, it seems strange to me. Because I have a personal relationship with God and the idea that a lamb or a goat or a bull or some sort of sacrifice has to be paid. Like, it, it seems weird to me. I don't understand it all the time. And I want to know why. Like, why did God make, us, make it so that that had to happen? And I, I don't know the answers to why. Why do our sins have to be paid for in blood? I don't know. Because the life is in the blood. Our sins cause death. And so that blood has to be used. And we may not understand it. We may not like it. This is one of those times where I'm just telling you how things are. In order for us to interact with God, there needs to be some sort of sacrifice to atone for our sins. There needs to be some sort of cleansing in this bronze basin here. Again, I don't know what this water actually does spiritually, but God says it needs to happen. There needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a sacrifice before you can go into this space, which is the physical, literal location of God here in Exodus. 25, chapter 25, verse 22. God says, I will meet with you there and talk to you 
from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. I want to be absolutely clear about what the Bible is describing here. The Bible is not describing a metaphorical location of God. It's not describing a symbolic location of God. The Bible is holding out here in Exodus that that was God's physical, literal location. That's how Moses would have seen it. As in, if you wanted to talk to God and you went outside of this big courtyard, he wouldn't be out there. He was inside that room. Okay. Show of hands and this is honesty time. Does that make anybody a little bit uncomfortable to think about? Good. It should. Because it makes me uncomfortable to think about. In my brain, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that because I think to myself, God is eternal. God's outside time and space. He's the God who is and was and is to come. He can't fit inside a 225 square foot room. Right? That's where my brain goes. How can that be a physical location of God? God can't do that. God can't fit his fullness inside of a 225 square foot tent until he does. God can't fit his fullness into one human being on earth until he does. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't get to tell God what He can and cannot fit into. We don't get to make the rules that says God can't fit inside of a 225 square foot tent. Well, he did. We don't get to tell God he can't fit his fullness into one human being because that's exactly what he did. I don't get to tell God he can't take away my sins. Whatever I've done is too big, too great, too... Unforgivable. I don't get to tell God that my sins are unforgivable and tell him he can't do something because that's what he does. I want you to think about that for a second. God is absolutely saying here he is dwelling among his people in this location. And if that's what he wants to do, he's going to do it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You guys know what that word dwelt actually literally means in the Greek? It means tabernacled. Like if you look at the actual word and you took the literal definition of it, he tabernacled among us. He set up his tabernacle among us. Jesus is absolutely 
the dwelling place of the fullness of God. Ooh, you guys coming back here? Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. That's okay, because we're about to wrap this up. Um, we don't get to tell God what he can and can't do. If you're at a point in your life where you feel like God can't do something for you, maybe your sin is too great, maybe the struggles you're going through are too big, and you're like, God can't help me here. God can't fix this. God can't. I'm going to tell you something. God absolutely can. If you're thinking to yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not righteous enough, I'm not perfect enough to be with God, well, I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is, you're right, you're not. You're not good enough. You're not perfect enough. But the good news is, is He absolutely can make you clean. He absolutely can atone for your sins with blood and with water. He absolutely can fit His fullness in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, you're not good enough. That's true. I had, just as a side note, I had somebody the other day uh, tell me that I should be my authentic self. We should all be our true authentic selves. And my first thought was like, Man, my authentic self is pretty awful. I don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't want to be my true authentic self. I want to be like Christ. He can make us that way. And he's promised us that he will. He's promised us that we will be the location of his spirit. Acts 2.38 Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. All of this, the wash basin, the sacrifice, has been done. Repent and be baptized. Make yourself, excuse me, bad phrasing. Let God make you clean for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of God dwelling within you. It's 225 square feet. That's us. When we receive the Spirit, when we're baptized, when we're followers of Christ, we get to be the location of God. We get to be His portable tabernacles that takes the Holy Spirit with us. Isn't that good news? We don't get to tell God He can't do that. We don't get to tell Him He can't fit. We don't get to tell Him we're unredeemable. We don't get to tell Him that we're never going to be good enough to be with Him. We don't get to tell Him If he tells us we're redeemable, it's the truth. If he tells us that his fullness can fit inside of us, it's the truth. If he tells us we're loved, if he tells us we're forgiven, it's the truth. He means it. If he tells us that we're valuable, that we're made in his image, that he knows every hair on our heads... 
It's the truth. And he means it. Will you pray with me? Just, we are so amazed by you. We're so amazed of what you can do. We're so amazed of the work that you can do in our lives. And we just, we have no other response other than gratitude. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around the idea that you can fit inside a 225 square foot tent, but you can do it. We have a hard time trying to understand the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, but we know you can do it because you said it. So, Father, I just ask as we go on throughout our day that you would that you would guide us, that you would let us be your tabernacle, that you would let us carry your spirit with us. And we pray all of this in the name of your son Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much.